Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's episode, I'm joined by the chef, broadcaster, food writer and campaigner, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. We first got to know Hugh through his much-loved River Cottage TV series and books, filmed at his River Cottage estate on the Devon-Dorset border. His uncompromising commitment to seasonal, ethically produced food and his concern for the environment inspired a vast and loyal fan base. Alongside more than 20 cookery shows, he's also tackled powerful issues in his documentary campaigns like obesity, the illegal wildlife trade, fishing and the war on plastic. He's the author of numerous best-selling cookbooks and he's back with a new one, Eat Better Forever. We talk about that, his life-changing trip to Africa, which shaped his food philosophy, what it was like traveling around India for four months with his young family, how a close shave while filming nearly left him in a Vietnamese jail, the power of wild swimming throughout the freezing winter months, and his favorite staycation spots. All that and more coming up on The Travel Diaries. Thank you, Fernley Whittingstall. Welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, at a time when no one is able to travel anywhere, I'm so pleased that today we're going to be going on a journey through your life's travel diaries so far, some armchair traveling for us all. Um, And we're going to start with chapter one, your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? It's interesting, isn't it, thinking about travel at a time like this and just in just preparing to talk to you today, it's everything's felt like a fantasy. You know, I, I, I long to go to, to any and all of the places that we're going to talk about today. But the first of them for me, uh, the most the most intense childhood memory of, of travel that I have is Greece. Uh-huh. And uh, a holiday in Greece when I can't have been more than five or six. We went there. We went there because my dad had made great friends with a Greek gentleman when he when they they were at university together and they became great friends. Uh, he was called Spiro, and they Spiro married an Englishwoman. Uh, who was actually a friend of my mother's. So it was all very neat ah. and tidy. And um, they they lived in Athens and they had a little holiday house on an island called Egina. And we went there a few times. And I think some, maybe one or two summers in a row. But my, and I'm sure my memories have fused from different trips there. But I have, I have intense memories of sound and smell and taste from visits to Egina. And I can sort of conjure them. There there was a lot of sitting out in the garden in the evening and the sound of the cicadas and grown-ups chatting and drinking and laughing and me and my sister being allowed to stay up a little bit late and be with them. And I can remember grabbing pistachio nuts from a bowl on the table 
and lemons and limes, maybe other citruses too, growing in the garden. And I remember the smell of a cut lime and the, and the, the, the incredible zesty citrus aroma of, of the lime skin mm. that was probably being cut for, for their gin and tonics. Although I also remember them drinking ouzo, that, that extraordinary licorice drink. Oh, um, yeah. Which I have sampled since, and it it's not a drink that travels well, but if you are <laughs> if you are in Greece and the sun is shining and uh, maybe there's a little bit of burnt octopus in front of you, and indeed these pistachio nuts, which I keep coming back to, I think I probably didn't taste them for another ten or even twenty years because you just couldn't get them in the u k at that time, so they were something extraordinarily exotic. And I remember peeling them, picking the uh, you know the shells off for my mum and maybe others to eat, and then um, snaffling the odd one myself. And this bright green nut with an extraordinary distinctive taste. Oh. I've always enjoyed pistachios ever since. In fact, if I do if I do end up with a bowl in front of me, I I, I have to just apply a little bit of self control not not to binge the entire bowl. <laughs> me too. How interesting that the earliest travel memory that you have really focuses on on food on on smell and taste as you say so did that love of food and cooking come at a very young age for you it did come yeah I I got involved in cooking at home at a very young age helping my mum in the kitchen I remember mincing we we used to have if ever we had a, a leg of lamb for a Sunday lunch then a, a day or two later it would be shepherd's pie which was one of my favorites and we had a a handheld, a crank-handled mincer, and my mum would feed the uh, bits of the, the leftover lamb along with a few slices of onion uh, through the, the mincer, and I would turn the handle, or mm. sometimes we'd swap jobs, although she'd get very anxious that I was going to mince my little fingers. <laughs> so the, 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 the sounds and smells of the kitchen uh, are always very prevalent in my memories where, wherever I am in the world. Mm, yeah, flavours and places are so intrinsically linked. It's it's not just the chefs on this podcast that talk about that. And Greece, well, I mean, such vivid flavours. So a great answer first up. Right, let's keep going. Chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. Where would that be? Well, beaches have always been a big thing in my life and uh, on family holidays. Uh, we've that that first travel memory that ran so deep was was Greece, but actually when I was growing up, we we mostly had uh, domestic summer holidays you know, in the UK, and and that's how I discovered Dorset, which I love and where I lived for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, and and basically the West Country because we we had we had holidays in Dorset and Devon and Cornwall, but we we settled into Cornwall from. I guess when I was about 10 years old and we went back to the same holiday cottage near a little village called Port Quinn and just up the cliff path, a a good half mile walk from a lovely beach called Ephaven Cove. And this is probably still my favorite beach in the world, even though I haven't been there for quite a few years now. We went to Cornwall pretty much every year for nearly 10 years from from between the age of about ten and and twenty, when I when I started sort of 
making my own decisions about where to go on holiday. But for, we had pretty much a decade of family holidays in, in North Cornwall, mostly in this little cottage on the cliffs above Ephaven. And we walked down there pretty much every day, often several times a day. Mm-hmm. And it's a reasonably well-known beach, but it, but it's just round the corner from a, a much bigger and better-known beach called Lundy Bay. Mm-hmm. But Ephaven Cove was almost it was it was a further away from any car park and people who went to Lundy often didn't know that if you just walked another couple of hundred meters over the cliff uh you would find this miniature version this little tiny cove flanked by high rocks and rock pools and with a big uh sandy chunk at low tide but it was different things at different states of the tide and at, at low tide you 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 had the sand uh, and and it went far enough out that you could you could surf on the incoming waves, and it was flanked by these rocks and amazing rock pools where I would scrabble around for crabs and prawns, and I also fished off the rocks there. Didn't catch very much, but but put in a lot of time casting spinners, <laughs> caught the odd mackerel, dreamed of catching a bass, which I never did till many years later. I, I can picture this beach so well. And another feature it had that became perhaps a little more interesting and exciting uh, when I was a teenager, it had a, a, a sort of grassy bowl in the cliff top that was quite near the cliff edge, but somehow very safe. So you could sit in this grassy bowl or in the evenings or even at night, you could you could lie down and look up at the stars. And I went there with friends uh, who are still my friends, teenagers, people I knew growing up who are still in my life. And we would lie there and look at the stars and talk, and maybe pass around a somewhat illicit half bottle of cheap whiskey that we'd got from a local off license, <laughs> which made the conversation flow a bit more. <laughs> and uh, and I've been back there a few times, every few years. Um, and, and I've taken my wife there and and shown her and and that uh and i when i just find that little bowl again it'll it'll never go away i mean i hope that 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 piece of cliff remains intact whatever strange uh things that the climate and the sea do i mean it's been there for millions of years i hope it'll be there for millions more but um that that's a very very special place for me oh yeah Cornwall's such a special place to so many people on the travel diaries it really is an all-time favorite a hidden gem a first place people fall in love with it means so much to so many people especially us Brits doesn't it it does I have to say I'm slightly I'd like to think we were sort of early adopters we started going there in the 80s but of course it was already very popular destination especially around Polzeth and and rock and places like that. I'd be a little anxious to go there midsummer these days. Yeah. And when I have snuck back in in the last few years, it's usually been off season, which is also a wonderful place to go, uh, a wonderful time to go. And I will go back again soon. I'm sort of I'm due a dose, and I'm, and of course I you know, I live in East Devon, so I'm really not very far away. It's not more than a, an hour and a half, two hour drive to Ephaven Cove from here. But still, it's such a Sometimes you you know you don't want to rush back to the places that that hold such strong memories. You you don't want to be there too regularly. You you want to build up a yearning, I yeah. think, to go back to those places and and then act on impulse sometime when you maybe wake up in one morning and think, you know what, today's the day. There's no reason why I couldn't go there today, and oh, maybe that'll happen sometime in. 
2021. I mean, it's been such a, a strange time recently that I, I can see that going to look for that special place that, that is holds such a place in my heart, this could be the year to make that happen again. Oh, here's to hoping. I think we've all been drawing up mental lists of the places we want to rush to once we can leave the living room, haven't we? And beyond being in Cornwall, your answer I really love because it reminds me of such a crucial rule of travelling, which is to look around the corner of the touristy spots. It's where you find those gems like at Paven Cove. Yeah. So from formative holidays to transformative travel experiences now, chapter three is the place where you learn the most about yourself. This is probably a, a, a hard one and, and not a hard one. I mean, I think probably the most transformative travel experience I've had was going to Africa when I left university, a trip that I'd planned for some time. Now, as well as growing up and learning very quickly a, a love of food and cooking, the other obsession I had, and it really was an obsession, was was wildlife. And I think that partly came from a kind of vital move that my mum and dad made at, at, in, at the very beginning of the 70s when they left London and moved to a rented farmhouse in Gloucestershire. And for me, that was at the age of six, that was moving from an urban environment to to this great huge outdoor space that just seemed an, an amazing adventure and it just changed my life and i immediately became fascinated by birds and, and not just birds but birds and snails and beetles and and i did the all those things that i mean not very acceptable these days but i collected birds eggs and i and i kept snails in a box and fed them on grass and lettuce leaves and and uh, went on walks and bike rides with my friends and looked out for all sorts of strange. And we, uh, and these were times when the the life in the hedge in the countryside was just brimming. Mm. And um, and that enthusiasm extended out to excitement about the wildlife that I might one day get to see. And that that was largely experienced through the medium of television. And of course, David Attenborough and the the life series and the you know and and other wildlife documentaries i just couldn't get enough of them and, and picture books as well and i just had it in my mind that one day i would travel to africa and i would see some of these animals for myself and so in my last year at university a, a friend and i started hatching a plan and we wanted to go to africa but we also wanted to be useful so we made contact with a few NGOs and conservation organizations and in the end we got commissioned to to write a paper for a for a symposium that was due to happen the following year and we decided to um, plan our journey based around the idea of looking at the relationship between conservation authorities and local people and and the wildlife itself this three-cornered thing that was often quite tense and Fraught, and it was a fascinating journey, and it gave us access to some incredible places in southern africa we We started uh in in South Africa and in Johannesburg we bought a second hand pickup truck and we traveled to Swaziland and Botswana and Namibia and Zimbabwe uh It took us five months and we visited over twenty different game reserves. Oh, how wonderful. Uh, and while we were there, we interviewed 
people from the local population. We interviewed uh, the people who ran the reserves, and we uh, had endless, endless tapes. Uh, and uh, but I mean, in, in terms of my memory, with just the extraordinary things that we saw, we 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 saw everything. We saw amazing. Uh, we had amazing experiences with lions, cheetahs, leopards, the big stuff. But it's also we camped out in very wild places. We once heard an absolutely deafening roar um, in the middle of the night that woke us up with a, a great start. And, and we woke up in the morning to find a, that a family of lions, they, they, they'd moved on before we woke, but had, had slept within 50 metres of where we were in our tents. Oh, wow. So we, we had some really extraordinary experiences. And during that time, uh, my ideas about getting involved in wildlife conservation began to consolidate. And we started planning an idea that would bring us back, our, our, you know, our time ran out and our money ran out and we went back to the UK and we wrote our paper for the symposium. But I started to plan another venture, which was to, to, to write a book about the experience. But I felt I needed to go back there and do some more interviews and meet some more people. And that book never actually happened because i took a strange left turn in order to keep the body and soul together. I, I needed to get a job. And I, I went to work in the river cafe at Hammersmith. A friend of mine was working there as a waitress and, and she managed to get me a job in the kitchen. And when I started at the river cafe, I was the plan to go back to Africa and finish this book and, and maybe get more deeply involved in wildlife conservation was a very, very live plan. But I got very drawn into the world of cooking. I had an amazing time at the River Cafe. And in the end, I I parked the, the big wildlife conservation plan and, and took this left turn into professional cooking and then food journalism and writing about food. And a few years later, was making TV shows about cooking. Such an incredible journey. I mean, how it all unfolded. Yeah, I mean, I have no regrets about the the choice I made. In fact, it wasn't even really a choice. It was a sort of evolving, you know, one thing happened and then another thing happened, as, as it so often is in life. And then I was doing something different. But I think the experience... The, the reason this was so, such a transformative thing, e even though the, the, the hopes I took with me to Africa and the ideas about what I would do with my life never quite materialized, at least not at that point, um, they, they changed me. And I think that they made me, even though I went into food and cooking, they informed the, the, the kind of food and cooking, uh, not, in, not in terms of the food on the plate, but the underlying thing that I was always really interested in where ingredients came from mm -hmm. and what the effect of, of our choices is. I, I saw the connection from early on between food and agriculture and the choices we make and the wider world and the connection between food and the environment. And, and so when I was able to, many, many years later, even, even after making the River Cottage series, um, start looking at the big picture and for example the the way we source our fish and the the series i made for channel four fish fight and the connection between between conservation and the choices we make around food i i don't think i'd have been in that place if i hadn't had that experience in africa all those years before 
Mm, so it, it really shaped your food philosophy. I assume that philosophy also fed into your new book, which is Eat Better Forever. I've really enjoyed tucking into some of the recipes and also a lot of the information that you provide around the key recipes in the book. So can you tell me a little bit more about it and the inspiration behind it? There is a massive overlap, as it happens, between uh, the foods that keep us well and the foods that if that if we choose them are do tend to be the more sustainable choices that yes. are, are better for yeah. the planet and and that this is the direction of travel in my cooking and it's the philosophy that underpins our our river cottage cooking school and it's absolutely at the heart of this book and and it's the you know more and more our, our food choices should be plant led this is this is where the the, the great uh, food that keeps us well and the great diversity of foods that, that keeps food delicious is, even though we get very excited often by uh, meat and fish, and I am still an omnivore, um, the foods that I think should be front and central in our cooking are local, seasonal, plant-based foods. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't just mean what we call veg, fruit and veg, but also seeds and nuts and grains. And so the book is, has got these absolutely front and center. Uh, it's also underpinned by an, an idea that if we're trying to be healthy, we don't necessarily want to put all our eggs in, in one basket. It's, it's kind of a, a reaction against the idea of the, the single fix or, or one big idea diet book yeah. that, that tells yeah. you that it's, oh, it's all about gut health or it's all about, uh, you know, low carbs or, or reducing sugar or it's all about fasting. There are actually many elements to to healthy eating, and it really doesn't do us any harm to get a handle on a bunch of them. A more holistic approach. Yeah, a more holistic approach. Uh, People like things to be organized and clear. So I've come up with seven ways to transform your diet. That's the the subtitle of the book. And the the first one of them is what I call go whole. Just make whole natural foods the the fundamental building blocks of of your cooking and your eating. When we start relying too much on processed foods and in, in, you know, industrially made foods, we find that a lot of the good stuff has been taken out. The, 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 a lot of in, the ingredients have been refined to make them sort of more malleable and uh, manipulable. And then stuff we really don't need or our body doesn't even, frankly, know what they are. Various additives and preservatives and E-numbers have been put in, uh, again, for, for sort of purposes of longer shelf life. And we end up with foods that are nutritionally less than what they should be and have a bunch of stuff in, in them that, that, that isn't really good for us. And this is at the heart of the food crisis and the health crisis, not just in the West, but all over the world, where we see growing levels of obesity and people um, being made very, very unwell because of, uh, fundamentally because of, of the way they're eating. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. I think that would have to be India. India is a, is a world of travel. I mean, India is so many, many different destinations. And it's very dominant for me because I've been there quite a bit recently, but I'd never even been to India at all until 2014. And we went as a family. We I took four months out and mm-hmm. we took a, a chunk of time, January to April 2014. How amazing. Yeah, it was. It was wonderful. My wife had traveled to India before. I, I never had. I traveled to all sorts of amazing places in the world, but I'd never been to India. And I'd somehow, in the most ridiculous way, I, I kind of thought it was it was sort of too late. I was too old to discover India. You know, I hadn't been in my gap year and lots of my friends had and lots of people I knew had traveled there. And I somehow thought I'd sort of missed missed the Indian boat uh, <laughs> as if as if it wasn't possible to go to a completely new and exciting destination just after turning half a century which is which is what it was in fact and it was it was an extraordinary trip and brilliant to be there with the with the whole family that the the youngest kids came out of school and the elder ones came out for their school holidays and we had the most brilliant time i mean what was what was one of the best things about the trip is that, that we didn't really we arrived without without an itinerary we we had a 
some friends who were living in Delhi and we thought, well, we'll just, we'll get to Delhi and we'll see where we go from there. And we, we used Delhi as a base and went on various forays uh, around India based on recommendations for, from people we met pretty much after we got there. there were, we had a few ideas about places we'd like to visit. But to travel without, um, you know, without a pre-planned agenda was, was quite a new experience. And also to have this extraordinary country that's pretty much a continent sort of un- unfolding before you. Um, I, we were, I think we were nervous that, when we as we were heading out there that there were there was just too many possibilities that we'd we'd suffer from a sort of options paralysis that you know we wouldn't be able to make our minds up about where to go yeah but in the end we just bumped into people who said oh you must go there and and if it seemed like that it was a vaguely practical uh, opportunity then we thought yeah we'll give it a whirl and it was actually a lovely way to travel and, and to discover a new place Oh, that sounds, that's great. I mean, brave, but fantastic. I have to ask because this trip sounds so incredible and you were getting insider tips while you were out there. What was, you know, a recommendation that you got that was a real standout from a local or someone who has experience with India? Gosh, well, so many different places. Um, we One of my favorite places was we we went to a place called Bharatpur, uh, stayed in a which is, which is a bird sanctuary and 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 uh, just an amazing wild place, and we, it's actually not far from the from the Taj Mahal, so we snuck that in while we were there, okay. and that was that was amazing, uh, you know. Uh, but but the 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 highlight for me was these early morning walks in Bharatpur, and a couple of times I went with my son Freddie so he was 11 and uh just getting interested in birds and wildlife and we we got up at dawn a couple of times and met a local guide and went walking on these trails uh through Bharatpur and saw beautiful birds and deer and just heard sounds and and that we'd never heard before and it it was it's just something that will always stay with me a very very special Mm -hmm. time and how about a favorite hotel is there a a place that really stuck out to you as as a favorite place to stay we stayed in lots of different lovely places in india and and having amazing memories mostly only once but there's one place we've been back to quite a few times and it has a particular sort of role really which is that we only stay there on the way in and on the way out but it's become really special it's one of our favorite places and it's in Mumbai and it's called the West End Hotel uh-huh. and it was recommended by a friend so it's not one of the sort of glamorous or or exotic destinations it's the sort of way in and the way out but it's somewhere that we've just got huge affection for I've probably stayed there half a dozen times now wow. usually with family and they're just incredibly friendly. It's got a lovely little restaurant. It's it's not a fancy place at all. And I mean, I would just recommend it for anyone who wants a really dependable, friendly, easygoing place right in the middle of Mumbai. It happens to be uh, not uh, very far from, it's a sort of shortish walk to the Mumbai cricket ground mm-hmm. where one evening uh, we went to watch an amazing 2020 game. So, I mean, this is the thing thing about India. It is, it's, it's so many different places and so much excitement on so many different levels. It's got incredible 
wild places, beautiful birds. I mentioned Bharatpur before. But the, the urban life I also find really, really exciting. And staying in Mumbai and enjoying the street food and then going to a cricket match is just part of the, the thrill. Mm. And it's interesting that you mention your love of Mumbai as a city there, because I would say that your name is very much synonymous with the countryside. So you know, are you a city lover as well? I find that living in the countryside enables me to enjoy trips to the city so much right. and that includes London you know when I and I did live in London for most of my 30s and I spent quite a lot of time trying to escape you know going going out at the weekends to see my mum and dad or stay with friends or find other ways to get out of the city since I moved full-time to the west country which I did shortly after I discovered River Cottage where I've lived with my family ever since I found trips to the city really good fun to to any city to whether it's London or Paris or Bristol or or when we travel to further afield to some of the big cities of the world. Mm. And I've really enjoyed Delhi and really enjoyed Mumbai as I have other Indian cities like Pune where I've spent some time. So that the the buzz from being in the city makes sense to me because I because it's not my you know it's not my home patch it's not my my natural habitat. And so that juxtaposition really helps you to appreciate it, right? So can we talk a little bit about River Cottage? For my international listeners who might not be familiar with it, can you explain a little bit about it? Such a bastion of the British countryside. Well, River Cottage has has evolved because originally it was the name of a little cottage where I lived for a while and then made some TV shows, um, which were which were essentially about the the downsizing life, the, um, you know, it did actually genuinely reflect my move out of the city in search of a different way of living and raising my own livestock and growing my own food. And we, we made that series in the original cottage for three years in a row. And then I set up a, a cookery school of sorts, a sort of events place uh, in a farm nearby and we continue to film as we transform that into a garden and a kitchen and, and, and an occasional pop-up place that local people could visit. And now River Cottage HQ, as we call it, is a small farm and cookery school in East Devon, uh, not far from Lyme Regis, just over the border between Lyme Regis and Honiton. And it's where we run our cookery courses and still make occasional TV shows we spent a lot of the first lockdown putting our uh, favourite courses online. So we now have a, a an online cookery diploma at River Cottage, but we're really looking forward to opening That's again fantastic. as soon as possible and welcoming people back. This is what we love to do, is, is teach and inspire people about growing their own food and cooking, spending a day with us or maybe doing one of our four-day courses and then heading home brimming with ideas and projects and possibilities and just sharing in that extraordinary excitement uh, around food, especially food that you have been able to make close connections with, ideally by growing some of it yourself or by maybe learning to make your own cheese or or, or, or even cure your own smoke, your own fish and meat, or just to find out what those connections are with local food growers and how satisfying it is if you're able to source at least some of the food 
uh, from the local community. And you know, in the end, I think as with travel, what we what one of the things that makes life make sense really is is to create stories of our own. And and this is what happens when we, I mean, when we we come back with memories, but uh, of great trips we've had or holidays or adventures those memories are really the stories of that have stayed with us and great food always has a great story and if you if you want your food to help you to feel good not just in body but also in soul then it means a lot to know the story of where that food came from to meet the person who grew the vegetables or or have an, a visit to somewhere where they're actually making cheese or to connect with a farm and come home with something from that farm, mm-hmm. bring something of the provenance of the food into your kitchen and into your life and make those connections rather than what's often quite a, a sterile experience of just picking a, 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 a vac packed ingredient off, off a supermarket shelf. Absolutely. And I saw that you've been connecting with your landscape there as well, because on your Instagram, you were taking some uh, wild sea swims right in the midst of winter. Uh, and in in fact, even closer to home, we're very lucky to have a pond. Uh, I've already had a swim this morning. In fact, Outside? Uh, yeah, in the pond. Uh, last week, I oh. was breaking the ice. Uh, oh. You can see pictures of me ice swimming on, on Instagram. Wow. Uh, uh, the last couple of days, the ice has melted, but the temperature today was five degrees. <gasps> oh, my goodness. So it's quite really, In fact, I started this conversation um, wrapped up in my woolies. <laughs> because you just came in from the pond? Yeah, I came in from the pond about uh, 45 minutes before we started chatting and the reason I've taken a couple of breaks is because I've got the heating on in my little shed and as I'm warming up from my swim I get it's always a really nice feeling of slowly warming up from from the inside and I've got my merino wool leggings on under my jeans and there comes a point when I've started my day when I actually start to get too warm and then I have to turn the heater down and open the windows and I can start sort of uh, acclimatizing again to to the temperature as it is around me um but it's such a buzz this cold water in the morning it, it, if i don't make it to the pond or if i've got to do something early i I, ha- i get a cold shower in so one way or another i get a dose of cold water every day it's just something that's that's become part of my routine for starting the day and do you really feel tangible kind of uh, health benefits from it or what is it about it that you love I definitely think it's it well I, it's it's helped me uh I I I think it's really good at at dealing with stress it's helped me sleep better I mean this is really? me talking personally yeah. uh and it's just something now that's such a part of the fabric of my day that you know I I can't imagine a a day without that that cold water buzz at the beginning of it it grounds me at the beginning of the day i mean it, it it's i mean it, it's very it grounds me it wets me it waters me at the beginning of the day yeah i've never tried it but i want to give it a go because like you say i think it's uh it sounds mentally cleansing as well as kind of physically and spiritually it's very invigorating there's no doubt about it I would just say to anyone who's thinking of taking the plunge don't just go and jump in a really cold pond or the, or even the sea in the middle of winter you you get away with a dip in the sea because the water temperature doesn't get too low but be ready with so don't stay in too long uh, and be ready with some nice warm clothes to put on afterwards brilliant well chapter 5 then is your hidden gem a place that maybe my listeners might not know that much about that means a lot to you 
Well, I've chosen somewhere that's a bit of a recent discovery, and it's actually quite local. It's not some far-flung exotic destination. It's a really lovely little hotel right in the middle of Totnes, which is less than an hour from here, and it's called The Bull. It's it's in Devon on the on the south coast of Devon, not at all far from the sea. In Totnes, which if you don't know much about it, is a very quirky and interesting Devon town that's got something of a reputation for having a kind of, how shall I put it? I mean, people are drawn to Totnes for a slightly alternative lifestyle, and 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 which I think is great. Um, there was a time when somebody, I think some some uh, wag who had visited, did a little bit of uh, minor graffiti on the Totnes, the Welcome to Totnes sign as you came in, and they wrote "Twinned with Narnia," which I always thought was uh, a nice touch. But I, I have friends who live in and around Totnes, and indeed the, the people who run the Bull are friends of mine. And they've created this wonderful atmosphere, delicious food. They've um, got that sort of thing that I think that the uh, the buzz phrase w- would probably be, there's a, a, a lovely touch of wabi-sabi about it. Things that are old are still there. The, some of the walls have been tidied up but not recovered. So you've got that pattern of old cracking plaster work and lots of lovely found objects that are are just quirky and interesting, and it's just got a brilliant feel about it. Oh, that sounds great! Even though it's not too far away, it's just—I mean—it's just near enough to, to for a little escape for me and my wife to to nip away for a night or two and just enjoy a, a, a little bit of luxury, and then uh, a nice wander around Totnes. They've got a great market there at the weekend, and very near Dartmoor, so. Uh, we can take in a, a, a walk or even a wild swim in the River Dart uh, on the way there or on the way home. So the Bull in Totnes, such a special place. Brilliant. Oh, I think that staycation discoveries are going to be much needed at the moment. So, uh, okay, that's added to the list. It sounds great. We managed to sneak in a co- couple of visits in between the lockdowns. We've been there twice in the last few months when when it wasn't locked down and we'll be we'll be i hope uh, top of the list when we when we get a chance to get out again brilliant well in contrast then chapter 6 is your worst travel experience is there a place that you maybe remember for the wrong reasons well i remember one place for yeah the wrong reasons for having to leave it very quickly and in really quite scary circumstances and Th- that is uh, Vietnam, where we were doing some undercover filming about the illegal wildlife trade. And I had already been to meet a, a man who was prepared to sell me some rhino horn. And we were working with a, 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 a wildlife, an investigative wildlife charity who were doing some undercover work and were preparing for a trip to a village where, where where they were working with local operatives who were going to do some secret filming where they were expecting to find a cache of, of hidden ivory and possibly other wildlife products. And we'd taken quite a few uh, precautions. We'd gone in separately. We made sure we weren't sort of seen with them, but something hadn't quite gone right. And we'd been, they had other operatives keeping an eye on the outside of the hotel who realized that something was up when some uh, local um, police came in and they were 
could tell they were asking questions about the guests who who were in fact the, this team, and so we we had to make a swift exit as we were filming undercover. So I had to take all the rushes that we that we'd filmed, and um, we travelled separately. The idea was we were then going to meet up again in in Hong Kong, and so I travelled to the airport and I had to buy a ticket. I'd had, uh, you know, at the airport, which can sometimes, you know, raise eyebrows a little bit. Um, mm. And I felt from the minute I arrived at the at the travel desk that I was slightly under suspicion. There was a lot of looking at my passport. And, and at some point, I actually saw someone take a picture of my passport photo with their mobile phone. And then looked like they were sending it to someone else, and and I just thought that you know they're on to us, they're on to me. There's something's gonna, something's not right. And then eventually, and quite suddenly, they produced a ticket and handed it to me, and waved me on my way. And I thought, well, well maybe it's all right then. And I I checked in my bag and then went through customs. And I was standing in the in the customs queue, and I got to the front of the queue, and suddenly I heard a a, a, a noise like a kind of barked military order and all, all the uniformed uh, immigration officers who, who were at the various booths they all stood up and a small group of a, of a dozen uniformed people walked in uh, and I thought all oh, right that's it so they've for some reason they've left it to now and and this is where I get arrested and I just stood there looking around waiting to see what was going to happen oh my goodness and in fact all the uniformed immigration officers who had stood up walked out of their booths and were then, in a very formal way, replaced by the other dozen or so people who'd <laughs> come in in their uniforms, who then sat down. And after a short pause, I was waved forward. <laughs> so they were just changing shifts. Just a shift changeover done in a rather <laughs> formal and slightly militaristic way. That's so funny. My heart was absolutely <laughs> pounding. And I was just thinking, well, what is it going to be like in a Vietnamese jail convicted of effectively of spying? Uh, I'm going to have a, a, a really grim time. How am I going to tell my family? All this was flashing through my head. <laughs> So we're now on to the final chapter of your travel diaries, Hugh, and that is chapter seven, which is what is the destination at the top of your travel bucket list? Well, it's quite simple, really. I, I want to go and see my mum and dad. Oh, where are they? <laughs> They're in Gloucestershire. They're in, in a village called Wooten Under Edge. The great news is that they've both had their vaccinations. So, in, you know, in theory, really, I should be able to go and see them. Um, but that's not quite how it works at the moment. We are not supposed to be uh, traveling away from home. And, um, you know, we're going to play it by the rules, but hope that it won't be too long now. In terms of travel bucket list, anywhere, any kind of travel is a bucket list at the moment. Yes. So, I mean, that's one of the journeys I'm most looking forward to making but, uh, but you know, all the other things I've mentioned during uh, this lovely conversation, they're all back on my... I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to... I've, I feel a strong yearning to go back to Ephaven Cove. I want to pop down to the bull for dinner and a, and a night away. And and the idea of getting to India again sometime in the next year or two, I would love to do. But, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow. We can but dream. Thank you for taking us all around the world from our armchairs, Hugh. Those were your travel diaries. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. 
Oh, such a pleasure to talk to Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. His new book, Eat Better Forever, is out now. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to hear future episodes as soon as they're released, remember to hit subscribe on your podcast app of choice. To find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait until then, there's always the first three seasons to catch up on, from Michael Palin to Poppy Delavine and Serrano Fines to Rick Stein. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll speak to you next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 